Welcome to the Ag Emerge podcast brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. We're here to move the ag paradigm forward by helping you regenerate your soils using new ideas, research, and emerging technologies. Get ready to improve your soil, your crops, your livestock, and your family's livelihood. I'm Kim Sheese. And I'm Monty Bottens. And we're your hosts. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for joining us today. Have you ever wished you could have a cup of coffee or a cold beverage with leading soil health and regenerative ag thinkers? Well, that's just what we made possible for you as we recorded our live Q&A session from our Ag Emerge event where our speakers, Ray Archuleta, Rick Clark, Lauren Poncha, and Tommy Fenster joined Monty Bottens and Don Bull in an engaging conversation of scaling up regenerative ag. You know, this year's Ag Emerge event was a lot different because it was virtual. We missed the buzz of the morning conversations at breakfast and those great ocean views and, of course, delicious food. But what remained the same was the powerful content presented by thought leaders delivering challenging and motivating ideas, real-time practices, and progressive research that created that itch to think differently about our farming practices. In this episode, our speakers will share and build on one another's experiences to help you move the needle on adopting those game-changing practices. So grab your favorite beverage, and we'll pick up at the beginning of the conversation. So I think without further ado, we'll just jump into some of the first questions on the list here. Oh, Lauren, you're in the hot seat first. Blake asked, what's next for Stemple Creek? Uh, More land, more employees? What's the next big step? Wow, you know what? We don't really know. Um, We're kind of uh, taking it as it comes and we're open to opportunities. And we like working with like-minded people around the state. And who knows, maybe maybe we become more of a regional brand and we're West Coast or maybe even expand even further into the Midwest. But um, right now we're just uh, really enjoying um, partnering with like-minded people and, and trying to get amazing results, both with the soil and with the forage and with the cattle and, and keeping honesty, transparency, and quality. And as long as we can keep doing those three things, then we'll, we'll keep growing. Your brand builds itself a little better that way, huh? <laughs> it seems like it. Yeah. All right. Next question is from Justin. Oh, Lauren, you're up again. What do you do about liability issues for your agritourism? We love that. That's a really great question because it keeps a lot of people um, from being active and inviting you know guests to the ranch because they're afraid they're going to get sued. You know, the other the older generation really doesn't like like my parents really doesn't like to have open farm tours. And, you know, frankly, it's a pretty big deal for us, especially in California, because it's a litigious state. But um, we have insurance and we have a lot of insurance and it hasn't been um, really expensive. Frankly, it hasn't been really expensive until this year with all the fires in California. And it seems like liability has really cranked up and our insurance has gone up by three times this year with COVID and um, fires and everything else. So um, we're adapting and changing and you know, we're, we're going to be heavily insured and there's lots of ways to protect yourself, but it's not a reason to not have people come and engage with you, um, in my opinion. 
Um, so um, that's all I can say, you know, is, is we have faith in, we have faith in the people that are coming out and most of them are all well-intended and we hope that we um, don't do anything silly to, to open Pandora's box of legal issues, but we're insured. And I do think that insurance can cover those unexpected, but I think it's more important for farmers to tell people where their food comes from versus being afraid of, of that. And if we do have something to be afraid of, we really need to look inwardly and think about changing that instead of being afraid. So I think that's, uh, you know, open it up and be willing to show anybody, have that mindset on your own farm, be willing to show anybody. And if you can't have that mindset or you're afraid of something, you're, you're maybe not doing something right. So it's time to, to maybe change. Would, is, that a, is that a fair statement, Lauren? A hundred percent. I, I totally and completely uh, agree with you. And you said it perfectly. It's like, you know, what are we hiding? Let's open up our doors and show people if you're not happy and proud of the work that you're doing, then maybe you shouldn't be doing it and question yourself on it. Um, and all of us live in a glass house. We're not perfect at anything. And, you know, we need to explain that to our, our clients and show it to them and be like, you know what, we're not perfect, um, but we're trying our best and we're trying to do no harm. And we're trying to raise what we say we're raising and this is how we're doing it. And, you know, we can have a whole conversation just about this and third party uh, audits and certifications and all of these things going forward. And I'm, I stole this from one of my good friends, Joe Morris with Morris grass fed, but I want to be first person certified. I don't really care about all the other certifications. If I can be first person certified, people can come see what we're doing, you know, walk on the land, see the animals, meet us in person and, and really just have authenticity. And that's going to, really get us to the next level, in my opinion. Well, risk outweighs reward sometimes, because do you see that once someone is on your farm and sees your operation, then they are sold for life, basically, on on supplying them their family through your channels. Cool. Got a thumbs up. <laughs> All right. We'll move on. Ray, you've got a question. Uh, there's a lot of soil health talk out there today. Any suggestions on weeding through the content? Yeah, well... We were very fortunate if, if you if you go back in 20, 2007, if you looked at the word soil health, it, it rarely ever came out on, on a Google search. Now there's billions of, and one of the things to really, the way I look at, you know, a lot of people can talk about soil health, but it, it, it comes back to this very one thing. It, are, are your practices emulating the natural ecosystem? Are, are they mimicking nature and are they following the six principles we talk about? Because a lot of people can talk about they're doing soil health. And Rick and I have talked about this, that a lot of people claim, well, I do soil health and I do this, but yet they're using huge copious amounts of spray still. There's, they haven't backed off on the fertilizer. They haven't, they hadn't really changed the way they think. And see, soil health is like the word I use, biomimicry, is mimic life. It's, it's, um, it's about emulating the natural ecosystem and how it does business and how to be extremely careful with your tools and understand that the tools of tillage, chemical fertilizer, and pesticides, they, they hurt biology. That's why they're called sides, pesticide to kill. Tillage should be really called tillage side. It's destructive. 
And so the the authenticity, the when people that are really sincere about soil health, like people like Rick, they Rick is incredibly conscious. Every producer that I work with is incredibly conscious and understands that they're dealing with a living ecosystem. And there's a lot of people out there using the word soil health, but do they really understand what it really means? Uh, I would say that's not always the case. And I think that's important. It's it's become a, a buzzword. And what happens a lot of times when something becomes a buzzword is a concept of greenwashing, where everybody just kind of yeah. jumps on the back wagon and Oh yeah, we do that, you know, and and they really haven't changed their practices. And really, it's more of a of a thought process, a a principled process that you're trying to do versus just, oh yeah, we do that because we don't do this or we do do that. So uh, that's important. And there was a question that and you brought up the biochemistry thing, and I I thought yeah, that was a good a question good to follow up on that. Mm -hmm. This is from Andres. He asked, "How would you say uh, your concept of biomimicry is different to the concept of biodynamic farming?" Well. Both of them celebrate life. Notice the word bio, life. One mimics life, architecture, and structure, and design. A lot of it came from Janine Banius. A lot of people don't realize, like Velcro, we use Velcro on the daily, but that was learned and designed from cockleberries. We learned how to fly by mimicking birds. Uh, we are now emulating the forest and the prairie and its architecture of the multi-species mixes. And then when like when Rick rolls his cover crop down or people that roll cover crop down, you're emulating the forest floor. And that's biomimicry, mimicking life. Or when you move the cattle like, like buffalo and the bison and you're watching the architecture, the design. Biomimicry is mimicking the design. Biodynamics is uh, Steiner celebrated life, how you use and in, inculcated life like the compost and the way the timing and the way you did the biology. Both are absolutely beautiful systems, but they both celebrate life and they bring life into it and the design. And that's what the, the beauty about what Dr. Steiner, now keep in mind, folks, I came from an agronomy chemistry. When I went to college, I was taught chemistry, control, force, manipulate. Uh, biomimicry and biodynamics teaches, no, nurture life, mimic it, follow the design. Very different approach. It's really all about prospering life instead of trying to control life and, and yeah. looking at how, how do we make more things live? How, how do we make more uh, improved cycles and, and life cycles and those kind of things? It's, and once you get that down, don't you agree, Ray, that once that's down and you've got that at your, at your core, that everything you do changes how you look at things, how you solve things. It's a, like the quote that you shared there, you know, it's a, uh, not how you uh, how you change is how you see things versus uh, uh, you might share that quote. It with is everyone. I think that's yeah, very powerful. Martin, yeah, it was by Mr. Campbell and actually came from uh, Gabe and I use this on our our uh, a lot of our powerpoints. If you want to make small changes, change the way you do things. But if you want to do major changes, change the way you see things. Notice, like what Lauren said about when he invites people onto his operation, 
probably the most important thing is that openness. It's the way you embrace life and you bring people into your farm and operation. And the the people that celebrate and soil health and do biomimicry and do all the things we talk about, they have an absolute appreciation and understanding for life. They've changed every one of us that it's on this group here. We've changed the way we saw things. I had a complete 360 the way I changed. I had an epiphany. We all went through a paradigm shift. And, and 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 the other guys can talk about it, but I had to go through a paradigm shift because I saw farmers going broke and the water was not getting clean. So I went through a paradigm shift and made me start searching outside myself. So thank you, Monty. Yeah, that's what it really is, is a paradigm shift. I think that might be a good lead into a question for Tommy. Doing the research that you do, I'm sure you had certain expectations going into your study, but um, Andres also submitted a question asking what would you say was the biggest surprise with what you found based on your study? Yeah, um, you know, so I had a, a number of surprises, of course, with study. Uh, I'm, I'm a master's student, so this is really um, <laughs> my first study. <laughs> um, so kind of keep that in context, learned a lot. Um, but I would say overall, um, from looking at the data, I was most surprised by um, what we saw was the, the similarity in yield between the regenerative and conventional systems. And we, we hypothesized regenerative systems have lower yield compared to conventional um, systems um, going into this study. Um, but, you know, that definitely does come with a, a caveat. You know, for the study, we looked at 18 conventional, 18 regenerative farms. Um, and some of our conventional, our, our farms happen to be more in sort of the northern growing regions um, where we have overall lower yields. Um, we did pair all the regenerative and conventional. So um, really, um, you know, so in the future, it is really important, you know, as we're tracking this to make sure that, you know, some of these studies are focused in some of the um, areas of California, the more southern areas where you really do get um, much higher yields and when we look at these systems. So I think that, that similarity uh, was something that was a little bit um, surprising to me. But then once you kind of looked at the data overall, um, regenerative orchards had higher soil quality metrics, um, improving you know, your, our macro and micronutrients. So it wasn't overall necessarily maybe too surprising. It seemed like the soil, um, the fertility was there um, to get the, those numbers for the regenerative orchards. Um, and then looking at the nutrient quality of the almonds themselves, they were um, really similar in the differences. But, um, you know, another there's a really great study that just came out of Spain um, where they use leaf nutrient analysis as a proxy for yield, and they found the regenerative orchards actually um, did a little bit better um, in, like, one or two of these leaf nutrient metrics. So really, you know, they kind of suggested that um, there's that similarity in yields as well, too. So something that kind of surprised me, um, but something that needs to be looked at um, a lot more further and a lot more in depth as well, too. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Hope that answers the question. <laughs> So, Tommy, one of the things you talked about in your presentation is you're looking to uh, expand the study south. Um, right now, you're south yeah. as far as, I think, Sherlock and looking to go south in the South Valley. As you move south, yeah. really go to a rain deficit system in, in yeah. the winter months uh, as far as, yeah. especially in Kern County, uh, down by Bakersfield, you're, you're getting into very low rainfall amounts during the winter to help prosper those cover crops. What are some yeah. other things you anticipate seeing in there or uh, some things that uh, you're hoping to, to find answers to, uh, some concerns that you have? Uh, what, as you ex continue your research down the line, what are some of the things that you're hoping to discover and or um, challenges to overcome? 
Yeah, you know, I think that's just a, um, a great point. It's really just understanding the, the structural differences in the ecology um, of growing in different regions in California. So, you know, really understanding how those practices influences um, and then how quickly maybe you see changes and how you have to adapt um, these practices and what works in one region may not work in another. Um, I think um, kind of looking in a little bit, going to the difference between, you know, what are some of the benefits of, you know, intentionally planting your cover crop um, versus resident vegetation. So we had a number of orchards that were generative. They just let the resident vegetation um, go. I know there's some really great studies coming out of other labs around the state specifically looking at um, cover crops. So um, what kind of benefits do you get by intentionally selecting that mix um, and planting it yourself? Um, you know, um, how we didn't really look into um, some of the fungal or microbial pathogens that can afflict um, almond orchards and, you know, what are some management practices or um, ways that could influence on that health and just we're looking to quantify that too um, and comparing these regenerative and, and conventional systems as well. And then, you know, really, um, you know, for the analysis with different practices, we use a pretty basic matrix approach where is someone doing a practice, yes or no? Um, but, you know, we didn't get into those details of what are the variations in application rates, for example. Um, we just we just kept it really simple. So I think there's a lot of research um, in that as well, too. Um, you know, there's all there's kind of like a, a spectrum in, in so many things and kind of diving into those details and, the, you know, um, where stuff lies along those spectrum and what what influences, you know, how much do you have to cut back on something to see improvement? Um, really um, relevant and valid questions. Well, I'm really excited um, to see what you uh, come to as we move south in the valley. You know, pHs increase, alkalinity increases, um, you know, lack of rainfall. Yeah. And, and water quality dramatically decreases because we typically go to yeah. well or secondary water systems. So it'll be really great to see. And I think all those soil health principles, really, when you have it all working together well, can can adapt to those conditions and and continue to show dramatic differences it's just going to be within a different context as long as we're uh, addressing the uh, the context in which it's it's at so pretty excited about that and i wanted to share one thing with you tommy and i think rick you're going to appreciate this too but we took a uh, john deere uh, 1590 drill and we took okay. the box off because the box is uh, too tall to fit through an almond orchard the, the trees would just uh -huh. you know shave it off and we bought yeah. uh, salford air tanks and put in the center where you can clear the branches readjusted all the row spacings and uh, we have the first and we put uh, ultra high molecular polyplastic with steel caging around this thing so we can actually uh -huh. uh, no-till drill right into the beds and uh, almond orchards in california so it's, it's been a lot of fun to do that because uh, we believe like like you've seen uh, you can get much better results out of a highly diverse cover crop seed mixture versus just relying on the native vegetation. Definitely. Yeah. We're trying to target yeah. 16 to uh, 20 species out there when we're doing it. So, but no, it can be done. Tommy, continue. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's really great. And so just really um, kind of excited that, you know, there's a lot, a lot of questions and, you know, um, a lot of stuff to figure out. So hopefully um, keeping me busy for the years to come. And it's really great to hear about, all these types of innovations that are, are going on out there. That's really what drives the research, you know, and, uh, you know, farmers and producers 
figure out a, a new um, technology and a way to implement it. And um, it allows us to go out and ask the questions. So it's really, really great to hear. And I just want to give you a compliment on how you're approaching it is let's document what farmers are actually doing instead of trying to reinvent the wheel or come up with something on our own. And I think that that approach for soil health research really needs to be taken into account. Look at what are people doing within their own context and how much of a difference that's making compared to a neighbor who's maybe doing it the way they've always done because, gosh darn it, that's the way you always have to do it. So I think that's a that's a great approach that you're doing there. Keep it up. Yeah, to add to your point, Monty, in Chihuahua, Mexico, uh, several people that came to our schools, they're doing the same thing in apple orchards, planting the multi-species mix in irrigated areas where... You know, when we went and we were taught in college, they you never allowed anything between the pecan, almond, or any of the orchards. And you remember what they told us because they would steal the nutrients and water from the trees. And I remember we were all taught that. And but they didn't teach us that it actually creates more synergy and actually transfers nutrients and water and increases efficiencies. So it's really excited that you're doing this and we're taking it all the way down to Chihuahua, Mexico and the pecan orchards, New Mexico. So these principles work all over the world. So thank you for bringing that out, Monty. I think, Ray, you need to ask for a tuition uh, refund instead of tuition forgiveness because they obviously taught you all wrong. So you're going you're gonna to have to get a, get a refund, or a lot of us are going to have to get refunds, right? It's true. It's true, Monty. It was, that's what we were taught, competition, competition, but not the beautiful things of collaboration. So, yeah. All right. Switching gears a bit, we had a question, question for Rick from Michael. And he would like to know how many years did it take before the soil biology was at a level to break down the volumes of sequestered nutrients? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, it, you know, a lot of people talk about three years, four years, five years, and I'm, I'm in that same camp. Um, I've been on this, this journey for about 17 years now. And the later, the later part of the journey is when we really started cranking the soil health and we really started pulling the inputs away. So I always stress that you have to go into this easy and don't jeopardize the livelihood of your farm. But, you know, year three, year four for sure. And then year five, it, it really starts to roll. And then it all, it all makes sense on, on why we're doing this. Um, and, and I want to I want to add to a lot of the conversation that's already been started here. Um, we have taken everything away on our farm, tillage, uh, inputs, everything away. If we are constantly breaking down the microbial biomes home, let's call it, and they spend their whole time rebuilding their home, they're not working for us to be building soil health. So it's so important that we understand what we truly mean by soil health, that definition. It's a big deal because there's a lot of people on this curve and we've got to make sure that, that we're, we're representing it the proper way. No, I think that's important as you're really switching from a, a highly bacterial dominant system to a more fungal dominant system. It, you've created a you know, when you change one thing, you change everything. That's one of the things we like to talk about. And that's why we found that, you know, certain 
uh, ways, planter technology, certain, uh, you know, nutrient technology, certain crop rotation things. And, and, you know, you worked your way into this over, I, I believe eight years now or so is what, you, what you've, uh, shared there, maybe even longer, but that crawl, walk, run approach. Don't you think Rick and what you're doing there, very, very solid advice. Don't you think people are probably most afraid to, to start right to do the crawl approach, but then they go from the crawl to the walk. That isn't too bad, but boy, to go from the walk to the run, that's another big commitment step. Is that how yeah. talk to us about how you did that yourself, your feelings, um, what that was like to, to make those transitions and how you look at something on 40 acres, 400, 4,000, that kind of thing. Right. Yeah, you, Bonnie, you have a very good concept for, for what's happening here. So uh, let me try to expand on that. Um, when you are getting started in this journey, and what I mean by getting started is, is starting to no-till soybeans and starting to incorporate cover crops. You, we cannot bring no-till corn into this system at the very beginning because corn does not like compaction. And I don't care how good of a farmer you think you are, you have compaction. So we have to get that soil health working, the microbes churning away for us and, and getting those cover crops planted that mitigate the compaction and it opens up the whole system. And then when this happens, then you just start to see it unfold in front of you. But you have to take these cover crops way into their maturity. Um, we do something that I call farm green. And I think that is what has gotten us to the point to where we are so quickly. By what I mean by farming green is we plant our cash crop of corn and soybeans into a living, growing green cover crop. And we do not terminate that cover crop until after we've planted. When you do those kind of, of steps and, and you, you hold to this systematic approach, the amount of sequestration that is taking place from a cereal grain is unbelievable. If you let these things work for you, when you let the legume packages keep going on into late May, they have, they have fixed free nitrogen from the atmosphere at upwards of 250 pounds. So, you know, I like when I when I speak and when I talk, I think I probably mentioned this in the presentation I gave for you folks and your, your tremendous uh, seminar that you had. Um, it takes the power of patience and 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 if you can just wait, you don't need to come with me over to this island that I'm on. I mean, I am organic, no-till cover crop. That's almost impossible to do. But you can sure come somewhere on this curve and meet me and start reducing inputs and start reducing uh, the amount of money you spend and start increasing your ROI. Now, as we came down this journey of this systematic approach and, and we're now into it eight years and we're starting to pull stuff away, when you get to this point, this is when we had the highest ROIs on the farm at this point right here. We're still using a little bit of chemical and a little bit of fertilizer, very, very little of each one. None, no chemicals of fertilizer for soybeans, a little bit of synthetic nitrogen for corn, and a little bit of, of uh, post spray for corn. 
But then once you roll out of that and you go into this next level of this, this systematic approach, I like to call it regenerative organic stewardship. Now you are, you have this whole system working in a symbiotic relationship with mother nature and we're heading toward balance. And that's what you were talking about earlier, Monty, that balance of, of being too heavily bacterial-based and start shifting back toward either neutrality or maybe a little toward the fungal side of things. But the fungal is what gets you to where, where we need to be. These arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi have to be present in this system, and they are the backbone of the communication. Anything that goes down in this in this whole your whole profile is due to uh, the arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi. So there's just so many things that that you have to do to protect that that system. And I say it all the time, and I'll say it a lot longer. I sacrifice yield every day to maintain soil health, and you have to get over that notion that yield does not drive this system. It's soil health that drives this system. Yeah, I think that's a big paradigm shift to to get to there. And uh, I think uh, one of the things to, uh, you know, keep in mind the beauty of your system is you're doing a microbial handoff. If you're looking at essentially a microbial relay where you're going from your high diversity cover crop or in some cases alfalfa, and, and those kind of things and handing it off to your subsequent cash crop. And the way that you're doing that's really critical because currently most people do chemical termination. So when we do a glyphosate chemical termination, we know that glyphosate is actually a biostimulant for fusarium, phytophthora, and other uh, anaerobic-based water molds, which are also... Uh, typically associated with many, many diseases, seedling blights and other early root diseases. So, you know, we're, we're causing problems associated with that. The other thing that we have is we go with a paraquat approach, which, um, you know, I've switched on my own farm from glyphosate to a paraquat approach when planting green. I don't get the systemic activity and the fusarium spike, but all of a sudden I've got a, a green, robust growing crop, and then 24 hours later, it's toast, and that's a shock to the system. So the microbial system has to overcome that. You know, what you're doing with the rolling, uh, that's a slow death for the, for the plant. Uh, didn't talk about that a whole lot, but tell us a little bit about your roller crimper and, and why you've gone that way, kind of how that plant melts down and dies, or, or at least maybe in the cases of perennials gets stunted enough for the corn plant to overcome, and, and, and dive into that technology a little bit more on the roller crimper. Yeah, yeah. The roller crimper is where it's all at for our farm as far as maximizing, laying down this biomass, uh, suppressing weeds, mitigating compaction, armoring the soil. All of these things are critical. And, And again, the reason why we are in the journey that we are on this this next leg is because of soybeans. I was taught by Dr. Aaron Silva from the University of Wisconsin how to plant soybeans into standing rye at boot stage and then at antithesis of the cereal rye, we're going to roll everything down. Soybeans and rye are all being rolled down 
with the INJ Chevron roller crimper. Now, the reason why this works is because the timing from boot stage to anthesis, and, and anthesis is when the lignin is at the highest in the serial rye, and that's why it's able to be terminated with the roller crimper at this point. I mean, Monty, it will lay it flat and nothing stands back up. It is now ready to armor the soil and hold the weeds. Now, the reason why this works is because the timing is about 40 days from boot stage to anthesis, and in 40 days, your soybeans will not be to growth stage V3 yet. When we get to V3, beans are, are too tall to be rolled. So we're going to break branches, shred leaves, and all that. But if you can do this from V2.5 and, and earlier, there's another phenomenon taking place here, and I would love for Ray to expand on this in just a moment. We, th this roller crimper is affecting the apical bud to a point to where it's sending a message to the plant to stack nodes. So not only are we using the crimper to gain weed suppression and eliminate chemicals, but it is also sending a uh, some kind of a trigger to the soybean to stack nodes. And when we stack nodes, it puts more pods on. So that's how we got to the journey of where we are to jump to the next level. It all started with soybeans. And then we got our courage up and we moved into corn. We are heading into the third. This will be our third spring now where we've applied no nitrogen to corn, zero, whether it being synthetic or a manure, nothing. And we don't apply any OMRI approved products either. I'm trying to keep this as close to Mother Nature as we possibly can. So we've taken everything away. Now, Ray, I'm going to ask you that question. What's going on with the roller crimper and the apical bud? <laughs> well, actually, Rick, you probably know more than I do about that because um, it is interesting how it's, it stimulates uh, elongation. But to be honest with you, Rick, I don't know as much as uh, uh, than you do about the uh, the soybean, but one thing I did want to add is that a lot of people don't realize that um, the CRI also releases iliopathy iliopathic uh, molecules that suppress weeds, and it's been well documented that not only is that blanket that what Rick was talking about, but it also when the microbes break down the CRI, these molecules are released that actually suppress also the weeds. So it's, there's, there's, a, there's another action going on. Another, uh, like Jergalone, um, sedan grass releases Sergalone. And it's very well documented when you have um, that particular grass growing, it will suppress other plants coming behind it. Also, um, walnuts, you guys have all seen under a walnut tree, jogaline being released. Those are those natural herbicides. And that term is called negative communication. Plants will actually release these molecules to get, actually to kind of give them a little competitive edge. But it's been well documented that Ciri, and a lot of people get confused uh, with that they say, well, uh, corn, uh, CRI suppresses corn. That's not true. 
it it doesn't have an effect on corn. But what Rick and I have seen, and Rick and I have talked about this, it's nitrogen is an issue. And a lot of times the producers, when their soils are unhealthy, like Rick was talking about, you might have to offset a little bit of nitrogen so that you can get that corn to to grow. And because keep in mind that cereal rye will suck up all the nitrogen in the nitrate form and it'll take it from that soil system and it'll release it back. Uh, it'll release it during the later part of the season and you'll get that nitrogen back. But they've been, and Rick's heard this many times, aliopathic, aliopathic, corn's aliopathic. I mean, to cereal rye, that's not the case. That's not true. If that was the case, I would have been shot years ago when Ray Styers did this in the 80s. He's been doing this for years. And so a lot of agronomists are spreading that information that's just not true, that it's aliopathic towards corn. The other thing that happens too, oh, Ray, oh. in those systems, and Rick, is you wind up, when you start out, let's say, at a 2% two, 2 organic matter, you're you're adding a lot of above-ground biomass, and, and all of a sudden you've introduced a whole flush of carbon to that system that it's not used to and it's not cycling. So up front, we found working with customers, we'll go higher rates of nitrogen on the planter and less side dress. So we'll, we'll shift it to the front at the beginning. Then over time, as uh, the soil system normalizes to these new carbon levels and as organic matter increases and microbial mineralization and cycling improves, then we can shift not only the total nitrogen down, but then we can shift nitrogen back to more of the in-season application. So we're not having to feed the corn to overcome tie-up. We're, feed, we're able to better time it to the uh, growth pattern needs of, of the plant. So that's a that's an I agree with you 100% Ray it's not a leliopathic effect it's uh, poor equipment setup and laziness is what's causing this sorry folks but, but that's, yeah. uh, that's and, that just, and, and just to add Monty is one of the things we, when we use Roundup to kill that cover that CRI a lot of people don't realize that that Roundup is taken up and it leaks into the roots and kills the soil biology and then you have this horrible lag time and that and it and Rick knows this that it takes a long time for that plant to kill versus when they started when we switched to gramoxone, that rupturing of that uh, that cell, the lysis, released those nutrients a lot quicker versus Roundup because we were getting a lot of those bad side effects using Roundup like you're talking about, Monty. And, and, and producers were getting this horrible yield reductions, but they were blaming it on the CRI, but it could also be the Roundup that's causing that issue, like you talked about. And one thing that's really interesting, and I, and I heard this work, believe it or not, now 22 years ago, and now today we're just in the last couple of years learning about how, how detrimental glyphosate can be. But Dr. Bob Kramer from University of Missouri, that's a, that's a good state to be from, um, he would show basically aer aerobic versus anaerobic bi microbes would shift from a 9 to 1 ratio pre-glyphosate application to a one to eight ratio post glyphosate application. I mean, it was that much of a shift because the glyphosate was um, sterilizing and or creating a stimulation of the anaerobic uh, fusarium microbes. So that's that's a that's a real real big challenge. One thing that Rick may bring this up 
uh, Monty, is that another thing we were having problems is when we put large amounts of animal waste out there from sewage lagoons and from either dairy or hog, we would get a huge microbial shutdown when you put too much manure. And Rick can talk about a little bit about how his experience with manures. Anytime you had, keep in mind, nature doesn't store manures in anaerobic conditions. They're always aerobic conditions. And when we had anywhere from uh, 18 to 20,000 gallons of liquid manure put out, the microbes absolutely completely shut down and no nutrient cycling. And the way we were able to figure this out was using Dr. Rick Caney's test. We could see the microbial respiration just go to the toilet. And this is why we were not having advancements in soil health because way, the producers are putting way, way too much manure. And maybe Rick, you want to talk about that? What we found through our journey of, of not only synthetic nitrogen, but but uh, nitrogen coming from, from manures like Ray's talking about is very detrimental to the system. It's too big of a shock. The microbes cannot handle large amounts of nitrogen in any form. Now, I, I've gone the other way. I mean, I am, I'm stubborn and I'm going to stay with this. Now, people say I'm insane because I've got 2,000 acres that touch a dairy's drag line and I'm not taking a drop of it. Well, Rick, don't take the whole 20,000. Why don't you take five? Well, there's other things happening here. The compaction is unbelievable, what's, what's being created on, the, on these fields. I don't have the tillage, and I, even if I did have the equipment, I wouldn't do it. So we have taken everything away, and, and our system is becoming balanced, and it's starting, you know, I hear, I hear these, there, there's, there's so many microbes under our feet that we don't even know what they're called yet. But we know there's a group that will actually fix nitrogen. And once we can turn that group on, then we can now stand. I mean, our system right now, we do testing all the time. We are mineralizing at the least 50 units of N a year is what we're mineralizing in our system alone. That doesn't count the legume packages we're putting down that are bringing out over 200 pounds of nitrogen. But we have to stop these large uh, doses of nitrogen, whether it's synthetic or organic or what it may be. And I want to go back to the cereal rye for just a moment. I totally agree with what Ray said. Now, now cereal rye is a very important species here because... Cereal rye can be used anywhere in a, a temperature zone. You go into Canada and you, they say it's too cold, we can't. No, you can plant cereal rye up there. You can plant it all the way up until the ground freezes. But here's what I think is going on. Let's come back down. I'm in the Midwest. I am basically on the border of, of Missouri and Iowa in Indiana. Okay, so I'm right in line with, with the, that border. I think this is what's happening. I think you've got raise out a part of this releasing that's affecting the weeds, but I think this is what else is happening. Cereal rye is a tremendous sequester of nutrients, and I think it has absolutely sequestered the food for those weeds at that time of when they're trying to germinate in the early spring. And then when you lay this down, you suffocate the any that may have survived without much nutrition 
You've now wiped them out. Now, as you've laid this down, we've done research and we've found that most of that biomass is going to be depleted at the second month after you've laid this down. So now we're in August 1st. Now that plant is releasing most of those nutrients that it's sequestered. So it's not only feeding your cash crop, now it's feeding the late germinated weeds like foxtail. And that's what our nemesis is right now, is foxtail coming out of this cereal rye. So I think once we understand this and we understand the mechanism that's happening, we have to change the trigger. So in other words, plant wheat and then clip that wheat in the, in the summer and not let the foxtail ever go to seed then. It's just stuff like that. You are constantly trying to work with Mother Nature. She's sending us the signals. Let's just don't be so blind to not see them. I think something that Dr. Dwayne Beck said last year at Ag Emerge was your rotation and what you do should be so confusing that not only do your weeds not know it, you really don't know what's going on. So I think that's a disruption is a is a key ingredient to what we're doing. So Ray mentioned the Haney test. We had a specific question from Michael Brown, wondering if there's any use sending out cold weather taken soil samples for either traditional or Haney tests. I don't know how cold cold weather is. I don't know where Michael's from. Well, the temperature temperature is incredibly critical when you're doing the Haney test because it's a biological test and it should be done at 55 degrees and above. If it's not 55 degrees and above, the microbes aren't processing. So why are we out there? And I keep telling farmers, why are you growing corn in in and it's a warm season grass? And 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 so the Haney test is designed at 55 degrees and above. It's a biological test, and it's incredibly sensitive test. So 55 degrees is what we recommend. Hey, hey Monty, we do the Haney test twice a year. We do it in the spring, like Ray's talking about, once it's warmed up beyond 55. We have the, the locations are geospatially marked, so we go back to the exact same location again, and we do it in the fall. I think what I'm going to do now, though, I think I'm going to add one in the middle. And we're going to now take three tests at, in three different parts of the field. It's the highest production part of the field, the lowest production part of the field, and the average production part of the field. And I think we're going to do them now three times a year. That's how important. I mean, the Haney test is it's not a, a soil test. It's a soil health test. And it currently is the best test we have. Ray, what I was going to ask you on this, or Rick, on your experience, uh, we're a soil health partnership uh, test farm, and uh, we send in um, samples both to Midwest Labs uh, or Ward Labs and then also to uh, Haney Labs there in, in Texas. And I wanted to find out, on those soil health labs, are you seeing a difference in how they're handled? Because uh, we actually have to, for the sending it to Haney lab, we FedEx it and needs to be temperature controlled and oxygen status is very important where other labs yet to be named, uh, just say, Hey, send it in and we'll run it. And it sits in the back of a pickup truck for a week and it goes through UPS gets lost for a couple of weeks and gets through the lab. Uh, either one of you want to address that? Yeah, I'll talk. And then Rick will add, um, we, I only send my uh, to two labs right now that I feel comfortable right now. That's Lance Gunderson at Regen Ag Lab and Rick Haney 
why Dr. Haney? Well, he invented the test. And it's, it is very difficult to get these labs to follow his methodology to the exact T. And I get so frustrated. I said, look, if you're not using the same sophisticated water analyzers, if you're not using the, the, the CO2 analyzer that he designed, and it's very complex, but it's very sensitive. If you don't follow his methodology, then don't ask me to go read your tests because they're not going to be the same. You have to follow the methodology. And the only one that re is Regen Ag right now, because Lance Gunderson, a uh, soil microbiologist, was tutored and mentored by Rick and myself. And so if if you if I'm gonna if you're gonna spend that kind of money and we're gonna back you off on nitrogen, we have to make sure that the methodology is done correctly. And it's the only one. And I think Midwest Lab is working towards that direction. But once they have every piece of equipment exactly like Rick does, then I'll say, yes, you can use that lab. It's incredibly important, Monty, to use the right lab because they're all over the board. They're not following Rick's methodology correctly. And that's been a very frustrating thing to deal with. Rick, do you have any other comments? I don't need to add a thing to that. You're exactly correct because I've even seen it within the same lab that you use. You send them a sample and then you say, oh, you know what? I didn't, and something happened. I'm going to send you another one. And you get another result three weeks later. That's the opposite of what you got three weeks ago. So you're exactly right. It's very important what lab you use. And just to add one more point, Russell Hedrick, the young kid from North Carolina, who won the 2016 yield contest in dry land corn was 318 bushel corn with only 140 units. But that young man was meticulous how he used the Haney test. In fact, there was research for the first three to five years with NC State in Georgia with the Haney test and the Haney test won those first three to five years. And then the researchers quit the research. We never got our research paper out of it. And a lot of farmers are getting hurt throughout the country because we're over applying too much nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. And so that's why Rick designed the, 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 uh, the test to begin with. We're over applying way too much nutrients throughout the country. I, I want to make a, a quick a point. Uh, a lot of times we hear a lot of stories about the Haney test, that it's all over the board. Please understand that the Haney test and the old soil test are apples and oranges. Don't compare them. Use them together. They're apples and oranges. I've had an agronomist in California tell me, he says, well, Ray, it's all, it's all over the board. And I said, of course it's all over the board. Your body changes every day. Notice what Rick's doing in his, in his soil regime. He does one in the early spring. He does one at a certain spot at a certain time every year. This, your body changes every day. The soil changes every day. All you can expect from the Haney is to give you a snapshot in time. It, if, if I fed every one of you a hamburger and you did a blood test before and after, it's going to change. The Haney test is that sensitive. It changes. So we look don't compare. A lot friends. of people confused. 
Yeah, they it, it moves. It people don't understand the soil is alive. It changes every day. So the 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 Haney test is a biological test. So please understand that. And Rick understands that. Notice how many times he's doing that test. So it's a snapshot in time. Don't compare the old test with the Haney test. And that's where a lot of people get confused. Don't don't do that. They're total different tests. So something I think we'll do at the end of this is we're going to make a, a resource sheet for you that outlines the uh, lab preferences and also the pulling techniques. So how you pull it, the time of year that you pull it, where you pull it, also how you ship it and temperature control. We'll go through all those details so that we can have that resource for you so that when it's not zero degrees outside like it is here in the Midwest, uh, you know, and our cows are eating hay, Lauren, instead of yours eating that green grass out there since you got some rain. But uh, we'll get that so when you're ready to do that, you've got that resource. So I think those are all great points, Ray, and we'll, we'll make sure that people do it right and that they are comparing their oranges to their oranges. Makes sense. We are going to totally switch gears real quick. Lauren, we've got a question for you. We're going to talk some direct marketing stuff. Um, question is, how have podcasts and interviews helped or hindered your marketing efforts? Oh, wow. I mean, uh, I think that comes back to the authenticity thing. And I mean, it's it's free marketing when you get on a podcast or a, an interview. And it's just another uh, another chance to tell our story. And actually, this last week, we were just on uh, a program called How I Built This with Guy Raz. And this week alone, I've talked to people from all over the world. I had a guy in uh, Panama today that wants our beef in Panama. I'm like, well, that's pretty cool, but there's probably a local producer that can do it better, but, uh, or, you know, a little closer, but yeah. So, and as far as networking and, um, um, getting our brand exposure, it's been, it's been vital. And it seems like, uh, it seems like good press, um, opens the door for more good press. And, and I just talked to CNBC this week and they're going to do an article. And so I'm just trying to spread the message about regenerative ranching and farming. And, and a lot of the things that I've learned from Ray and others about, um, you know, soil cover and having a living root in the ground and um, trying to keep photosynthesis going and creating disturbance um, in different ways. And, um, um, the other main message that we give all the time is, you know, you don't know what you don't know, and we're constantly learning. And I think that, you know, 10 years from now, I'll have a different story about what is right than I do right now. But we're paying attention and we're trying to learn and we're, and we're, um, I think we're getting great results. So, yeah, I mean, uh, it's, it goes back to the authenticity and it works really well when you can have an open door policy and, and uh, tell your story. Well, just like you mentioned, the guy from Panama, if you're telling your story, that's how that's going to reach that person. You know, they may have somebody closer, but you're telling right. your story louder. So well, and the other right, thing is, right. too, is if we as farmers don't tell our story, somebody else is going to tell our story for us. So all of us, uh, both as speakers here and all of the guests on this podcast, you need to know what your story is. You need to be able to effectively communicate that because you have an important story to share and people want to hear it. And if we don't, somebody else will tell it for us. And they're probably not going to tell it in the way that they should or in the way that uh, represents what we're really doing. So I think that's that's a real important piece. There you go. 
<laughs> well, another question, and maybe we can provide some resources for this too, is for Tommy. Um, question asking, how do farms get involved with the research happening through Ecdysis Foundation? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, really, if you want to get involved in the research at Ecdysis Foundation, um, you just want to reach out and, um, and shoot us an email. Um, I'm sure we can, well, this will be provided afterwards, but my email is keyfenster at gmail.com if you want to get in contact um, with me. And then uh, the director of the Ecdysis Foundation is uh, John Lundgren, and he's jonathan.lundgren at ecdysis.bio. Um, and we are, you know, right now in the thick of um, trying to get um, orchards um, in the southern range to, to do this next um, round of studies to do more regenerative versus conventional comparisons, and also really um, do these transitional studies, um, documenting how these conventional orchards, what's happening with their metrics, and what's going on in that transition process. Um, so yeah, um, send an email. Um, yeah, make sure you get all that contact information, um, or even a call. Okay. Are there other crop-specific research ongoing right now throughout the country? Or is uh, oh, yeah. Um, really a bit of everything. There's a lot of um, some grain crops um, through the Midwest, um, all the way up through Canada. Um, corn, uh, corn and soy, as well as um, a lot of rangeland research going on in the, the Midwest as well, too. I think uh, maybe even uh, branching out a little bit into um, some vineyards as well out here um, in California. So pretty much a um, whole range of agricultural systems. So, yeah, if you're, if you're growing it, you know, uh, reach out to us, and there's a good chance that we're trying to, to study it in some way. <laughs> Very good. No, you guys are doing great work, work that's needed and, and work that isn't always popular, but you uh, research it to its end. And, and uh, uh, we're glad that you are led by a rebel researcher. Well, I think you'll be okay with that. Randy. Uh, another one here for Lauren. They're putting you on the spot. They want to know what your plans are for the future. It says you've had a lot of trials and successes over the years. What challenge is pushing you right now? You know what? When I, um, when I started this, when I came back home uh, to the ranch, 15 years ago, I'd actually had this long history of working for pharmaceutical companies and selling the crops or the, you know, the products that you guys are talking about right now. And uh, the whole point of coming home was to make it a profitable business that I could actually, um, you know, be a rancher and make a living and do that full time. And, and what's my business has morphed into is, I still do a lot of ranching and farming because I like that. And the cattle part is really what I'm passionate about. But as our business grows, it becomes more and more um, intense for me to use my brain and not my hands. And like Mondays and Wednesdays are now office days when I'd rather be out in the field, you know, rotating cattle and moving electric fence and all those types of things. So um, what we're really trying to do now as a company is my wife who has no ag background, until 20 years ago when we got married um, and I are, we're trying to put systems in place and build uh, bridges amongst our staff so that in five years, Lisa and I can be luxuries to the company and it is still going to run. So we want systems in place to make it, make it still function, whether we sell a hundred animals or 5,000 animals in, in five years. So, um, you know, that's, that's kind of, it's just work every single day. It's work. And I'd say our biggest opportunity area is processing. As you can imagine in the industry, processing gets more complex, the more animals you have. And right now we work with 12, one, two, 12 different USDA plants in the state of California to harvest our product and bring it to 
um, the consumer. And that's really complex. You know, it's, it's 12 different personalities that you have to deal with at least one personality at each location. So, um, you know, that's a big thing for us to, to work on. And it's probably our area that we're most vulnerable because somebody else is in charge of our success instead of, instead of us, we can raise the amazing animal, but somebody else cuts it, packs it, you know, and then we can deliver it, but it has to be perfect every time. So that's our biggest challenge. Yeah. Nationwide when COVID hit, uh, the, the processing's a, a great challenge. I'm trying to think in Illinois, if there are 12 USDA processors that went to <laughs> private labeling, I can think of two. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's, it's a real challenge, but I think farmers are up to the task. And uh, when you have a challenge, you'll, you'll get together and you'll probably do a plan of your own in the future. So, you know, grassroots, uh, farmers cooperative has done that in the mid South. And I think there'll be other people that, uh, uh pursue that, uh, opportunity down the road so uh i'm looking forward to it stample creek processing and i took note of that um monday and wednesday office days i'm going to put that on monty's calendar so that he can come in from the pasture and and work and the, a little bit they're supposed to be sacred office days but about half of them get hijacked because there's something urgent at the ranch but <laughs> urgent huh <laughs> Uh, we've got an open-ended question for Ray. What do you think is next in our ag paradigm shift? Uh, I tell you, we have been through so many shifts. And I think I think one of the, the biggest shifts that I've had to overcome, well, there was, there was three big paradigm shifts. One was that the soil was alive. That was a huge shift for me. And... Um, and then Rick mentioned another one that I have, I see farmers really, really struggle with this is the word yield. And it, it has inhibited a lot of producers from going to the next step because they're so enamored with yield and yield and profitability are not always the same thing. And that was a, a, a big shift for me. Another one that, I had to overcome my own personal thing about weeds. Weeds were a huge, huge struggle, even in my pastures. If I saw weeds and I realized that I was looking at weeds very, very incorrectly, they're nature's healers and scabs. And and Lauren knows the cattle loves them and Rick understands that they love them. And, 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 and understanding that those natural uh, forbs, those those when I and I took graduate level wheat science school, and since then I throw that book in the trash, and made me realize that those plants are absolutely indicator species and they help you, and so those were three big huge paradigm shifts that uh, I think that one has to overcome, and that you don't need all these chemicals, you don't need all these chemicals, and that you can you can facilitate life yourself. And I think, uh, I think those are some of the, the three major shifts that I've, uh, uh, that I think, uh, are becoming more and more evident and Rick and Lauren probably have some ideas and Tommy, but those have been my three big shifts that, that happened to me. Yeah. I could quickly follow up on that. Yeah. Just with regards to the almond orchard, just the fact of you know, preventing the um, getting some ground cover onto the orchard floor. Um, that resident vegetation is our, our fancy name for weeds, <laughs> is what we call it. But that just provided um, a really big service and was, you know, key um, to preventing erosion. Um, 
the cubicle in that fertility um, versus the bare orchard floors you typically see, um, you know, in orchards. So, yeah, I just agree with what Ray said on that on that front. We'll move on to a question for Rick on timing here. It says it's from Michael, in regards to your regen crop year, do you have a typical or preferred cash crop leading into and coming out of that year? And do you graze any of that cover or strictly use it for biomass production? Great questions. You've got a good audience. Um, yes, there. Let me answer that in a couple different ways. If we have the infrastructure in place, meaning fencing and water, then yes, livestock will come across those regen acres and graze across. Typically what we're going to, I, I don't know the answer on what crops to follow. Um, it depends on where you're located, what your soil type is, and how much you know pugging did you get when the cattle were there they're going to create a little bit of compaction up on that surface of three inches honestly cattle compaction does not go as deep as people think it goes it's right there in that surface area but sometimes it's difficult to put corn behind the cattle i know that seems crazy because you think that the nutrients that the cattle are dropping are going to be the nutrients that you would need for that corn crop. But we've got a study going on right now. I've got corn behind cattle and I've got soybeans behind cattle. I think my personal opinion is the soybeans are going to be the way to go behind the cattle and then corn comes behind the soybeans. Now, leading into that region year, I really don't care what that crop is, but you've got to, you've got to be thinking about what your cash crop rotation or what your cash crops are. If corn is in your rotation, which it probably is, like Ray said, it's a warm season grass. We have to get that cover crop established in a timely fashion in that fall preceding that corn crop. So the region it without cattle for sure is corn the next year because it takes away all of the excuses. I live too far north. I live too far south. It's too hot. It's too cold. It doesn't matter. All those excuses are gone now because you've taken that acre out of production. We're going to smack it with a, a cool season cocktail. Then we're going to hit it with a warm season cocktail. And then we're going to go in with the cocktail that is going to be set and primed for corn the following year but now remember with the system that we're in now and and termination on our farm is now done mechanically i have to be very careful on what species we use for example not you know we talk about diversity oh my you got to get 16 species in your mix and i totally agree with that but we also have to figure out how to get perennials in the mix because that's just as big of a diversity as it is just having 16 annuals in a cocktail but there again we've got to be careful i i you know lesson learned I put some chicory out, and man, do the cattle love chicory, but you can't stop that stuff. So we have to be careful on where we're headed and what those unintended consequences are going to be because there always are unintended consequences. So let me ask you this, Rick, on the perennials. Uh, I've been toying around on our own farm. Ryan and I have been discussing the regen year doing, you know, basically a winter, uh, summer, winter type approach with annuals. 
but we've also talked about doing a perennial type pasture for four years just to to see what it's like first off your infrastructure costs are divided over four years instead of over that your seed costs are divided over more years and you kind of you get a heat more of a healing effect where where how much of that have you done what's your thoughts on that where where's where's rick clark's brain on on the one year versus four year regeneration pattern yeah monty i think that is a tremendous plan because now you can really you really start to build that soil health and you've now started to eliminate purchasing those cover crops on an annual basis. You're now building that, that perennial. But now here's the thing. We have to understand how to raise corn into that system. I don't know how to do that yet. It will absolutely swallow your corn up and suffocate it. So there are so many other things that now, you know, maybe – you know, and I'm not a proponent of this, but maybe you're going to have to think about strip tillage in these perennial type environments. Ray can probably answer this better than I can. I've not experienced it, but now I think this is where 60 inch corn or 40 inch corn, because we're on 20s, I think 40 might make sense. And then you put that with your grazing package behind it, it all starts to make total sense. I don't know how to raise that corn crop in that perennial yet. We're still working on that. But yes, Monty, I totally agree. Ray, go ahead and add to that, please. I agree with you, Rick. I think, and and Monty, if you can have four years of building aggregates and building soil biology, it really augments. And one of the things when we when we get people from CRP, the first thing we tell them, never grow into a corn because corn requires, like Rick was talking, so much nitrogen, so demanding. Start off your rotation into a soybean because it doesn't demand that. But how do you, like Rick was talking about, how do you make sure that perennial doesn't overcome and how do you terminate that that uh, perennial so that soybean takes that lead? But I, when we start off with somebody from taking CRP ground, we always start them into a legume system because uh, there's not enough cycling, especially in CRP, since it's been grazed poorly, there's no cycling going on. And so you have a lot of carbon, but very little nitrogen in the system. And then to start corn in that is a disaster. That's the worst crop to start somebody. Right, Rick? And, and so... You'll just have a, you'll you'll have a failure. Yeah, you'll have a failure and you'll be so upset about it. So it's understanding that context and or that CRP or that pasture ground. And your biggest thing is how do you terminate it uh, without doing excessive tillage? Now, I will tell you this. I, I, I like what Rick talked about. If you use a strip till machine and you only bother this much of the surface area versus the whole, the whole place, you have less damage, and when you do that, so that's a that's a thought process. It's very hard. It's not easy, like Rick said. Yeah, I think that depends on your on your context. If you're in the organic context yeah. and you don't have a chemical termination on an annual crop or on a perennial crop, or even like with annual ryegrass, and you didn't go through a vernalization, you know, you've you've got some limitations there. So you really need to look at what that is. But uh, yeah, Mike, I would love to use. Uh, annual ryegrass. I cannot. 
because I cannot take the chance of being able to terminate it. But again, I'm so extreme. But if you live in the southern parts of Indiana and Illinois and your fragipan is, is terrible, then annual ryegrass is about all you got. So you just have to adjust your your thinking and your your ability to work in this systematic approach in what works in your neck of the woods. It's always got to be tested on your farm. There we had a follow-up question to livestock. I mm-hmm. thought since everybody's in, you want to bring that up. Say Rick, Lauren, or Monty could probably weigh in on this, but it said fencing was uh, fencing for livestock was mentioned in your presentations. Could you share any thoughts on the challenge of getting them water? I mean, the whole in my world, the whole um, grazing design is going to be around where the where the water is, and. I'm going more and more now to above ground water where we can use the black pipe and put it on the surface of the ground and put an electric fence over the top of it and have risers. And then we can just move the cattle wherever we want to. But right now I have, and this is not necessarily right, but it's where we started 10 years ago. I have um, wagon wheel type designs where I have permanent water structures that come gravity flow out of tanks, storage tanks. And then we wagon wheel around those. Um, but there's so many different ways to do it. Um, so no, no perfect answer. Remember, Lauren is in the beautiful, warm state of uh, California. So surface water like that's okay. In Indiana, we got to be four feet deep or it'll freeze. But he's exactly correct. You've got to design your rotational grazing around where the water availability is. So now what we've done is we've put water on wheels. So we haul water in tankers that will last up to two to three days at a stop and then go back, refill that tanker, and then move that water supply as we move the rotational grazing. So, it again, what works for you is may not work for somebody else. But it is extremely cheap to put up perimeter fencing now. I mean, it is so cheap. And you, you've got to reach a point, Monty, where you have to decide to make a change. We've got to change the way we've been doing it and step out of your comfort zone and take a 40-acre field and start doing these practices and start getting comfortable. You cannot jeopardize the livelihood of the farm. I'm sure Lauren would tell you that you don't go out and buy 500 cows and think you're going to start raising cattle. So it takes time to get into this. My own experience. Um, so when when we pursued this, we saw that the first four soil health principles we could get so far in improving soil health, but really saw that fifth principle as some of my friends jokingly call it, the fifth element of livestock in integration as an ability to, to double those things. So in the last four years, with we had 100% cropland, no pasture land. And how do we integrate livestock onto cropland? So, you know, class A, some class B cropland. And now today we've got it to where we can set up a perimeter fence in uh, with two guys one day we can pull a perimeter fence. We can take the cattle out today. I can pull the perimeter fence, have it out by noon, and the planter is running at 1 o'clock to plant that field. 
Uh, so we've developed all those systems. The other thing for the water that we've developed is completely mobile systems. So I have a 2000 foot hose reel. I can take water to anywhere within that field. So if I want to do squares on this rotation, if I want to do rectangles, if I want to do million pound stock density, if I want to do a hundred thousand pound stock density, we can do anything we want at any moment in time because that's what you have to equip yourself for is maximum flexibility. So uh, we haul water to fields that don't have a water well and have a stationary tank at the field side with a solar-powered booster pump that pumps it through our 2,000-foot hose reel out to wherever that mobile water tank is. And then we move that water tank every day because if I don't, we destroy that field that I'm going to no-till plant corn into after those cattle are done grazing. You know, and when we have extremely wet years like 2019, we have to have that flexibility. So the tools are out there, and that's something I've been working on a lot on our own farm to experiment with is so farmers we get to work with We've got those tools now in place that can teach you how to how to integrate livestock on your land and still no-till and graze cover crops and, and get all those soil health benefits and, and do it quickly and efficiently. So it's a whole new world in, in this. It's it's not grandpa's barbed wire and uh, woven wire fences, that's for sure. And Monty, you used a key word, adaptability, adaptive. In, in my grazing system, it's the same way. It's got it. Lauren talked about it. Rick talked about it. You talked. Your flexibility, adaptability, it, it's not a fixed system. And so that's really critical what you said. Well, I think uh, it's, uh, it, yeah, however you set up your, everybody that's listening, however you set up your farm, you want to be able to take in any extreme in any configuration that you want to do, just so you don't paint yourself into a corner. So, yeah, fencing is one, uh, takes a little different thinking, but it, it's awesome when you get it figured out. One funny thing about that, Monty, is I I knew you know ten years ago intuitively that I needed to start putting more mobs together and grazing cattle around, and I built these fences up and down the hills one or two hot wire fences, they became permanent fences. And this year, in the last three months, I've been tearing those fences out and putting them on contour. I'm like, what was I thinking going up and down? So, I mean, we make tons of mistakes. You just have to lick your wounds and keep moving on, you know, but. uh, I like Joel Salatin's fence, uh, a temporary fence. And if you find you don't move it for three years, then make it permanent. So that's, that's good advice. Well, you know, Lauren, as we used to design livestock and uh, pipeline systems and fencing systems, and we 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 did internal and we fixed them, and that was the worst thing we ever did because there were uh, areas of collection for weeds. There was no flexibility. It was just the wrong approach, and that we've had to go back and pull all those fences because there was no adaptability. It was no flexibility to the system at all. Good point. Speaking of flexible, we're switching gears to almonds. <laughs> Tommy, you're back up. We've got a question from Carrie in California. Uh, wanting you to just right. give us a little bit more information on what yield differences did you see as an average between conventional and regenerative? Yeah, um, statistically, the yield um, show that there, there's no difference statistically um, between the yields, between the regenerative and the conventional system, um, which uh, was, you know, a little bit um, surprising. Um, course initially um, but I think you know it's something that I think needs to kind of be looked into um, a lot further in future research and I think also the idea of not necessarily being so wrapped around um, the idea of yield and really looking at the overall profitability 
of the system. So just keeping that in context, you know, that yield is not the end-all, be-all of the metrics that we're evaluating. Um, it does look encouraging from this first study that we saw um, the similarities, but I definitely think, you know, we need to have more studies that look into this further and dive a little bit deeper. And if I could add to that, one of the trends with uh, permanent crops is the sampling. Um, you know, when you are doing a corn hybrid or a wheat trial or whatever, you make a pass with the harvester, you dump it into a way wagon that has the weight, boom, you're done. You know, in almonds, what you've got is you're shaking the almonds onto the ground, you're sweeping them in the windrows, and then you hope that all of those nuts get into the right trailer, that they get piled correctly at the uh, almond huller, that you get the correct grade sheets back for that location. So there's a there's a lot of chain of custody issues and also a lot of, of identifying and doing replicates within an almond orchard that make it tough to do high-intensity replicates, which then causes your LSD to start to widen. So you may have seen a significant uh, pound difference in yield, but the statistical difference wasn't, it, it didn't exceed the statistical variation, right, Tommy? Just because the, the amount of sample sets you had within there is just plain face it, tough to do in a permanent crop. Oh, yeah. And, you know, there's, um, you know, there's, you know, there's, you know, no, no, no study is, is certainly is perfect. And, you know, this one isn't um, perfect either. You know, for yields for this, we relied upon um, our yields were self reported by the farmers for the overall average yield for the, the overall farm in the study. Um, so yeah, um, so we didn't even, we didn't have a broken out by plot. Um, so, you know, we, our sample size for the yield in terms of the information we only get back was um, seven regenerative and seven conventional. Um, I will say our top two yielding orchards from the study, um, number one was a conventional, number two um, was a regenerative. Um, we also had issue um, with this variation in yields, um, 2018 was one of our study years. And if people remember a late, a frost happened during the bloom in 2018, um, it's really knocked back yield um, across the state. So even adding, you know, a bit more, um, as you mentioned, just kind of variation into the data. So um, I think, you know, future studies um, that we do um, have more ways of looking at yield. I'm, I'm really curious about, you know, using leaf nutrient status as a, a proxy um, for yield. At least some of these researchers in Spain seem to suggest, and, you know, kind of hearing from farmers and other people um, in the industry as well, you know, kind of what they think of that. But I think, yeah, with regards to yield, um, future studies, um, doing, uh, taking more metrics to try to quantify it and everything that is totally valid. The other thing that's fun, too, for the row crop guys that are on the call here, too, is that you're dealing with some trees are eight years, some are 10, some are 12. So you have that. You have rootstock variants. You have variety variants. Uh, you have water methodology. Oh, yeah versus micro sprinkler versus flood versus emitter rate. I mean, it, it's a, there's a, a wild bunch of variabilities to, to capture all that, to get a true side by side is uh, it's tough. It's, you're totally right. I mean, we, you're, we really control decently for age. You know, there's no statistical difference between the age, but we, we totally had uh, you know, one of our regenerative almond orchards was 38 years old. <laughs> you know, this, yeah. I mean, most times these orchards get knocked out when they're 25 years old um, and, you know, they start a new one. So, um, yeah, really, you know, um, we learned some good stuff in this study. We're really excited to kind of dive deeper and, um, you know, you know, improve 
definitely improve upon and all the stuff that we've learned so far. Well, definitely kudos on uh, taking in all those variabilities. That's uh, That was an amazing task to, to look at. You know, it makes us uh, uh, corn farmers that are just trying one thing and harvesting it. it it's pretty simple, see. <laughs> I mean, no, nothing I've learned is nothing simple. <laughs> oh, so, oh, okay, okay. One thing I wanted to add about we do with walnut growers and the almond is the water reduction, but also the nutrient density. We started planting the mixes and rolling the covers, but I have uh, certain walnut growers that are actually collecting regenerative uh, uh, walnuts growing regeneratively versus uh, conventionally. And then be able to collect and send the food, I mean, the walnuts to the lab to measure for nutrient density, but also for photonutrients. Because we have to remember that when you have those mixes growing, and like Rick talked about, that are basically mycorrhizae, they start communicating and sending these molecules, also more zinc, more all these other nutrients that send it to the nut. And so... Doing those comparative lift studies, we have some producers that are working on that. And because we have a lot of companies coming to us as we want higher quality nuts and we want to be able to prove that there are higher density in nutrients and photonutrients. So that is occurring in in um, in various labs, and I have a, a walnut producer that's actually testing his nuts in California to to see the difference between growing regeneratively versus non regeneratively. Yeah, yeah, I was really excited. Yeah, to follow along and, and see the results from that. In conclusion, on and that, I, uh, that. So I think the nutrient density is a huge issue, especially how it relates to human health and. Uh, we're excited that we're going to have Dr. Fred Provenza next year is going to be a, a presenter at Ag Emerge and his uh, research he just put out on the nutrient density of grass-fed beef and the different phytochemicals that are involved there is going to be really exciting for us to hear in the human health impacts. So we got about two minutes left. Dawn, do you have one more question have, you want to sneak in there? I have one more because it's an, it's kind of a comment with a question wrapped into it. And I think uh, all of you doing what you're doing and speaking and being in all these different engagements and telling our story and, and getting out there to spread this message. Um, Tom comments, this stuff is so complex. What are the prospects for widespread adoption? And with, with Aggie Merge and we, you know, came up with what our goal or our, um, you know, statement was for the year and it's scaling up regenerative agriculture because I think some people it's a, it's a hard hurdle and a mindset change. So what are your thoughts on widespread adoption? So why don't you want, we'll go around the horn on this sure. one and uh, try to keep it here to about 20 seconds each. Rick, we're going to start with you because you happen to be in the upper left-hand corner of our screen. <laughs> All right. Um, well, okay. When you, when you sit down and listen to people like what are on this, this presentation right now, everyone gets all jacked up and, and we're ready to go. We're ready to be soil health warriors. The problem is the support group is not there to help them continue down this path. Ray, with his company of understanding ag, is starting to fill in those gaps, but we need that support group, whether it be from this, the government level of USDA and RCS, but we need someone there to help them get started and gain the confidence. Tommy, how about you? I think I couldn't agree more uh, with that statement uh, by Rick. I would say that the, the, the biggest barrier is, is this, uh, these regenerative systems are not really dialed in uh, yet for the overall population. Um, when you look at the conventional systems, you really 
people know how to produce that conventional crop um, really well, and it's, it's really common, and there's a lot of support to do that. And I think with regards to the regenerative system, we still have um, a ways to go, but I think we're getting there, and it's just making sure we have that support and that um, farmers can feel that there's a sort of a dialed-in model and feel confident about that and that they're not just um, too much, that there's not too much trial and error involved. Lauren, about 20 seconds, what's your thoughts on how we get regenerative agriculture scaled up? I think, um, you know, success breeds success. So more and more people like are on this call that are having good, positive success that neighbors are going to look over the fence and say, hey, I want to participate. How can I do what you're doing? And Ray? I would have to, uh, you know, all the guys, what you guys said, Rick is exactly right. It's about community. Don't do this by yourself. Build a relationship. This is about relationship agriculture. Build build a guy, a group of guys, four or five, six. The Australians are doing the same thing because they don't have government cost share. They don't get any help. So they work together as a collective. Rick is exactly right. Work as a collective. Because if you do this by yourself, because it's so complex, like what Tommy was talking about, you'll spend the rest of your life trying to figure it out by yourself. Work as a community. And thank you for mentioning that, Rick. I'd like to close by saying uh, that's what we're here for. Ag Solutions Network uh, and our team was designed to basically help you farmers uh, put soil health practices uh, into practice on your own farm. And we're excited to do that. We're excited to offer the Ag Emerge venue to where you can get to hear from great people like we have here on this call. And we're also part of the uh, broadcast this year. Uh, we certainly hope in the future that we'll be able to be together live because the buzz in the hallways and the great food and the time together, really the social context helps us to learn and adopt things even, even quicker. But in the meantime, uh, we're here and the Ag Solutions Network member who invited you or made it possible for you to attend is certainly there to understand your local context and help you put cover crops on your farm, help you minimize disturbance related to tillage, help you integrate livestock help you to do the right things because like I said in my closing the right thing will always uh, come to light and we hope that you'll uh, you'll seek truth in your farming operation and that you'll you'll put things to work uh, successfully here in 2021 so thank you everyone I really appreciate it Rick Tommy Lauren Ray thank you for being a part of Aggie Merge 2021 thank you for your time this evening and uh, stay you. in touch and be a part of this uh, great movement that's going on Thank you so much. Thank you, yeah, Mark. Thank and you so much. I learned a ton this afternoon, so really, yeah, really a lot of fun. Awesome. Great way to spend time. Right. Keep up the good work. Well, we sure hope you enjoyed that engaging conversation between the speakers. You know, it is so fun to see them interacting and sharing their ideas, successes, and yes, even the failures. As you heard, there's no silver bullet, but there is a full arsenal of tools and resources you can adopt in your system. It's an exciting time, and we're so glad you're on this journey with us. Have a great day.